Salutations from space and aloha from Earth. This is Gemini Brett of More Than Astrology, here with part two in a series of three to honor the great Orpheus and Mercury, Hermes Trismegistus. So we'll see how Mercury and Orpheus are archetypally linked and also see how Dionysus this great god of earth comes into this scene. It's right now, 5.51 p.m. on April 21st, 2016. Thursday, Jupiter's day. Jupiter, having risen in the sign of Virgo. But now Libra on the rise. And with the Taurus sun, we might be feeling Venus there. But the moon has just ingressed Scorpio. Less than half an hour ago, it's in the 17th minute of Scorpio right now. And when the sun sets, the moon will rise because tonight is the full moon. A Scorpio full moon. In a month, in a cycle that began in Aries. On April 7th with the Aries new moon. Tonight's full moon will be the opposite of a supermoon instead of the moon as close to Earth as it can get as far away. So it's like a mini full moon, which I'm very excited to see. And it's interesting because one thing we sometimes hear about Scorpio and its lower octaves is that it likes to remain hidden. But it's also a wonderful energy for us to talk about things like death and birth, which of course are intimate mates creation and destruction. And these cycles. So even though the sun is in Taurus now, you know, I feel into this energy of the moon, and we're in this Aries moon, that fire, you know, seeds being planted with the new moon and this idea of what do we want to do? What can we put all, all of our energy into? What is the new quest? And now finding fullness and illumination in the sign of Scorpio. Yeah, obviously this has to do with our magic and our power and our passions and our desires and our excitements. So I'm excited to be in many ways reinvigorated by the light of this Scorpio full moon tonight. And this is that time in the cycle when the moon is in its highest life, right? It's very easy to see that. When we work with this relationship of moon and sun as shown by the moon's phases. In a couple weeks, it will be back in the darkness, yeah? New moon in Taurus, I believe, is Thursday, May 6, 2016. And then a new moon begins. Seated in the darkness. Wouldn't that be in the midst of the moon's monthly death. So here I found my way to the southern altar for me here at Lincoln Park. And we'll walk thrice around its curved triangle. It's amazing how many Mercury symbols I see in this outside office of mine. This curved triangle, it's the inner geometry 
of the Celtic knot I was talking about in the first episode. Yeah, three circles of equal radius and that sacred alignment that brings the Celtic knot. That's body, mind, and spirit in so many ways. The Trinity. And the inside geometry is this curved triangle. And that's what we're seeing here at this fire pit. And for me, in the south, because for me, the fire is the south. Yeah, the sun reaches its height in the south for us in the northern hemisphere. The other side of the sky, it's in the north for those who live in the southern hemisphere. So maybe the reach is a better way to think about this place where the sun finds its height. And the burning gets done where the heat comes from. And we sweat and let it go. Yeah? And we're fed with that bright light. And in a sense, there can be that fire trial. There can be that thirst. It reminds me of a story, actually. Mercury, now visible. Well, not right now. I'll have to wait till the sun sets, and it looks like the skies might be clear enough to offer me another glimpse of Mercury. This time where he's in the west, the sage portion of his synodic quest. As I mentioned in the first episode, the synodic cycle, the dance of Earth, Mercury, and Sun, about 116 days on average. This current one began in the sign of Capricorn on January 14th, when Mercury was at interior conjunction between the Earth and the Sun. Kazemi, in the heart of it, in the throne room of the king, getting the new message, and that was Capricorn. And though Mercury has since moved through Capricorn and Aquarius and Pisces and Aries and now exists in Taurus, in a sense, the collective consciousness has been tuned to the key of Capricorn. And now Mercury's at the end of that quest in the West. Sagacity mode. And soon... He will dive under the beams. Perhaps tonight he'll be seen. Perhaps not. And very soon, actually in a week, Mercury will go retrograde on April 28th. Joining Mars and Pluto and Saturn and Jupiter who are retrograde already, so we'll have more planets doing the moonwalk through the signs and constellations than moving direct for a time. And I'll get back to that, I believe. But Mercury will go under the beams and then go retrograde as he's passing Earth. will move between Earth and the Sun. This time on May 9th, a Mercury transit, so visibly so. And there he will have this last cycle, in a sense, burned off of him. <laughs> this death to be reborn into a new quest. Kazemi in the heart of it, in the throne room, getting the new message to the tune of Taurus and our collective consciousness, the overmind will be on a Taurus quest, an earth sign, a body mind for the next four months time. September 21st, 2016, we'll shift into Virgo. And then December 28th, 2016, back to Capricorn. 2017 will feature another 
journey with Taurus over mind and Virgus, Virgo over mind, and then the trickster takes his tune and his quest into the fire element, the intuition, the spirit, more of the psychic side of consciousness. So right now, sagacity mode. And then he'll disappear, get reset, and be born again in the morning. It's that very eager mind at the beginning of the quest. In a sense, it's like the, the fool card of the tarot. You know, that guy and his dog with his hobo bag on the stick over his shoulder, just kind of walking off the cliff. And so here I am, perhaps not so intelligently, jumping around on Lincoln Park's Pebble Beach driftwood. We'll see how that goes. The Fool, the card with the zero on it. <laughs> and the cards are older than the zero. You know, I have this whole thing about zero right now. In a sense, since it's not a real number, it is the first and it is the last. And we see that circle as the circle of spirit. So is the fool the beginning or the end, or the place where the two meet, the alpha and omega? And what has to be released from the sage to allow for a new quest to begin with this essence of the fool? And what is the shift from Capricorn to Taurus? What does it ask of us? And perhaps where in the chart is it really most calling our attention and how can we magically work with it for manifestation our own life's experience and I think that will be the focus of the third of these three episodes for now let's tie Orpheus to Mercury and put Orpheus back together so Orpheus you know this great musician Perhaps like the singing birds of the morning sky and this bard, this storyteller, yeah? And we can think about morning Mercury. Mercury, who on the first day of his life, yeah, stole his brother Apollo's cows, walked them backwards in their own footsteps. So think about Mercury retrograde in Taurus, which is coming our way now. Or Mercury retrograde in the constellation of the bull, which happened last year, and which is the first story I told in the storytelling podcast. In fact, I launched it, I believe it was May 30th, 2015, with Mercury Kazemi and Gemini in the constellation of the bull. And now Mercury will retrograde in the sign of Taurus, but the constellation of Aries since... The constellations and the seasonal signs that we Western astrologers utilize are no longer aligned due to the intriguing astronomical effect called precession of the equinoxes. Look it up. So Mercury in Taurus today, but in the butt of the ram. And that perhaps was another gift that... Hermes brought to the world. So he gave us on the first day of his birth, when he was young and bright and trickster and snuck out of his crib, he 
sacrificed one of those bulls that he stole from his brother Apollo, having walked it backwards in its own track for this trickster deception. He invented animal sacrifice on that first day of his life. He also used the guts from one of those cows to string across a tortoise shell that he had liberated its previous tenant from to create the first stringed instrument, the lyre, the harp, and the first instrument that could play a chord on the first day of Mercury's life. He brought to us harmony and all sorts of things, and he became a god. The condition, Zeus said, is you can't lie again because that was part of the story. And he said, oh, I can't promise I'll tell the whole truth. And Zeus said, hey, would never ask that of you. And if you want to hear more of that and my reflections of how that great story and its many details um, have a cosmological, astronomical correlation or association, check out the first episode of this podcast, Hermes Steals the Herd, I think it was called. So what about Orpheus? Well, think about Orpheus, just young, bright, you know, this greatest mortal musician playing that gift that Hermes brought into the world, the liar, being that storyteller, that bard, that truth speaker. Yeah? Maybe morning star, kind of eager Mercury. And then he goes on the quest with Jason and the Argonauts in search of the golden fleece. And perhaps that quest and all of its initiations speak to the next portion of the Mercury cycle when Mercury descends into the darkness, into the underworld, falls under the beams, and takes months to travel behind the sun from our point of view and just can't be seen. And what's going down back there for Mercury or for Orpheus in this example? And all sorts of things happened during the quest for the golden fleece by the Argonauts. And Orpheus and his beautiful music kept morale, kept the guys from killing one another, and saved them a couple times. And it is said in some versions that it was his sweet music that put the dragon to sleep that guarded the Golden Fleece in the Valley of Ares. So the Golden Fleece, and some have suggested it is that very Golden Fleece that lives in our heavens as the constellation called the Ram. And did you know that this was also a gift from Mercury? The Golden Fleece wasn't always a fleece. The golden fleece was once a golden ram, the golden lamb. And it was sent to earth by Mercury to save a young boy who was on the sacrificial altar. So a ram saved a young boy's life on the altar. Sounds like a story from the big book, if you will, but unlike the Abraham Isaac story that I just referenced. It was a little different. The ram didn't take the boy's place on the altar. And this boy, Phrixus, was not being 
sacrificed by his father, but by this king who is not a nice man, and maybe the boy's uncle, to avoid a prophecy that was spoken of losing his kingdom, as it so often is in these great stories. And so instead of sending a ram as a substitute, Hermes Mercury created this flying ram, this golden ram that came, flew in, and just grabbed the boy off the altar, and they flew away. His sister, Helle, flew with him. But unfortunately, she didn't quite make it. She fell from the ram's back and drowned in the waters in the place that still to this day is called the Hellespont, named after her. But Phrixus made it alive. And when that golden ram safely touched down, with its permission, even its insistence, Phrixus sacrificed that ram to Zeus. And its coat, the golden fleece, was in a sense traded because it was very powerful and magical for Phrixus's right to live in this new land and was then stationed to protect the fleece in that valley of Ares. But the essence of the golden ram itself was cast into the heavens and lives there now as that constellation of ram where Mercury today is smiling from. And you might have noticed that my tempo and stuff has shifted because (laughs) there's this crow hanging about five feet from us right now. So even though I'd like to walk away from that drone of Washington State Ferry you hear over there, um, I had to stop to check in with this lady here. It's interesting with a crow, right? One of the few birds where you really can't see gender. But I have a sense. Two crows to our left. That's the barking you hear. And just one right here hanging out with us. So three. And I'm called to honor thrice great Hermes. All right, so Hermes brought us these gifts. Harmony, the lyre, Orpheus's instrument, and that golden fleece, perhaps, that Orpheus with the other Argonauts won. So perhaps, you know, Morning Star Mercury is this Orpheus as a young guy, and then he goes on that quest, and this is Mercury in its long initiation behind the sun, invisible, all of the trials. And then he finds that fleece, you know, singing the dragon to sleep. Mercury popping up in the west in this place of sagacity. And then they grab that fleece and they hurry home with it. And maybe that's Mercury then moving from a western star to a morning star, showing himself again there. Now with the fleece intact, yeah? And it's time for a new adventure. And this adventure for Orpheus is called love. He falls for this beautiful nymph named Eurydice. And she for him. And they are to be married. And maybe, you know, if there's an astronomical association, maybe this is Mercury retrograde popping up in the morning sky after that Argonaut cycle 
and hanging out with Venus, perhaps. In fact, one of the ways that Mercury and Venus often align is just like that in the morning sky with Mercury retrograde and Venus direct. In fact, that's going to happen on May 13th this year. Um, and they neither will most likely be seen, but sometimes they are. And if they are, shortly thereafter, they separate. Mercury rising a little higher in the morning and then Venus diving under the beams of the sun for her initiation, which is about two to three months long. And perhaps you've been following along with the 13th flower video project that I've got with Maria devoted to Venus. If you haven't, please check it out. It's a whole kind of series of free teachings about the Venus synodic cycles and interviews with amazing astrologers and other healers and feelers from all walks of the way. And you can find that on my homepage, morethanastrology.com. Scroll down past these storytelling podcast episodes and find your way to the 13th flower and you will see there a YouTube link and a SoundCloud link and um, a Facebook group we'd love for you to join. And that will go at least until March of 2017 with Venus and her current quest. And I'll talk about Mercury there as Ninshabar of the great story from Sumer of Anana, who was clearly Venus. But back to Orpheus. So Orpheus meets Eurydice, and I'm saying this perhaps as this second morning star Mercury, having returned successfully with the fleece, finds his love, and she's bitten on the wedding night by the viper and taken down into the underworld. Venus goes under the beams and can't be seen. So Orpheus, as Mercury, quickly chases her down, right? And this is his second initiation behind the light of the sun in the underworld, coming to bring his lady back up. And actually, this is how it works with Venus and Mercury. He, um, in a sense, will escort her back from the underworld in a few months. She might be seen before he is, unlike this story, but not always. And so, if it was astronomically aligned, cosmologically correct, we would see Hermes, Mercury, show himself in the West with Venus, but she would disappear you know, right away. And that could actually can happen because Mercury moves faster than Venus. So I'd love to find a cycle where it works exactly like this and put up a little video about it. So there she is. He looked back too fast, you know, the things he didn't, didn't do. <laughs> he didn't not look back. And she's taken back under. And he's not allowed to go back there anymore. So here's Orpheus. Interesting that this we could call a sage mode. Perhaps that would have been a Scorpio cycle if his sagacity is the understanding of release, you know, of his passion or even his need for this other, maybe a Libra cycle. And then he's stationed after he's torn apart by Dionysus' maniads, he eventually becomes that prophet, that talking head, 
yeah, on the Isle of Lesbos. And I would suggest that, you know, Mercury and this initiation behind the sun trying to bring Eurydice back up, he gets permission to do so, but he doesn't quite succeed, or I should say Orpheus, not Mercury, although I'm suggesting they're one and the same, right? And there he is in the West without his love, shattered, and brings forth this beautiful essence of the ballad. I'm sorry, the ballad. <laughs> and it's torn apart for it. You know, and then thrown in the river. So what's that? That would be Mercury transitioning from evening star into morning star. So during the retrograde period, pops back up in the morning. This would be his talking head, the prophet on the Isle of Lesbos. And then what happens to that? Well, it's speaking truth over time and taking Apollo's Delphic oracle, kind of taking the attention from that. So Apollo, who is the sun, is not happy, and he comes and he finishes the job, and even Orpheus' talking head finds its death. Right? So that would be Mercury again in the mornings, now going under the beams. And there he's probably just allowed to die, and he finds eternal life in the afterworld under with his bride, Eurydice. So I think I'll make a video and put it on my YouTube also after I find the right um, times where this kind of Mercury and Venus dance would correlate to this Orpheus story. And I would suggest it often does, actually, about every other year, but there are some times where it will most align. Now, during that astrobabble, I've just made three circles around my western altar here. And the western altar is actually the ocean where things go to rest, right? But when the tide is up as it is now, I can't see what I can when it's low. And that's these three, in a sense, pillars that seem to be related to the saltwater Coleman pool here. And they're in the water, so the water claims them sometimes. So when they're not up, and I'm looking to connect to Mercury and his threeness, I'll come to these strange picnic benches here that there's three of them in a triangle, which is very weird. It's a, it's a strange ergonomic arrangement for a family picnic or something. This picnic benches, right? So there's a table and two benches for each of them. So there's three, three, three right there. They're in a circular uh, grade of concrete that's been cut so it won't split into threes, three equal pie slices of a circle. So basically you have the shape of a grand trine in the circle if you want to use it to symbolize the wheel of life. And at the end of each line cut into the concrete, is a large stone. And as Mercury does this dance, as I explained in the first episode, and some here in this one as well, through an element, right? In 2016, Capricorn, Virgo, sorry, Capricorn, Taurus, Virgo. Well, in fact, 23 degrees Capricorn, January 14th, 21 degrees Taurus, May 9th, 21 degrees Virgo, September 21st. So not only in these three earth elements, 
but in these degrees of the elements that would form the near-perfect grand Earth trine. And that's how Mercury does. So in Mercury's dance with the Earth and the Sun, this sacred triangle, or even better, like that shape of the Celtic knot, comes through. And this is one of the many reasons why Mercury is thrice great. Hermes. So we've had our Capricorn cycle. We're just at its end, and we're about to move from that sagacity of the trunk of the tree and the roots of ancestry and the structure and this kind of thing and move into Taurus and the fruit and the flower. And again, episode three, we're going to tune into that calling of our collective consciousness as we shift into the Taurus over mind and how we can live and let die or die and let live to fully connect. But for now, as we are here in the West, where everything goes to rest, let's talk a little more about death. Now, whether you live in the Northern Hemisphere or the Southern Hemisphere, everything rises in the East and sets in the West, right? Things can get a little funky if you're at the North or South Pole. I have a feeling you don't live there. So everything rises in the East. This is like the birth, right? I mean, that's Horus, the sun, who defeats his uncle in the morning when the sun rises, but then loses when his uncle Set wins the battle at sunset, yeah? And it's not just the sun that rises in the east and sets in the west. This is the case for all of the planets and the moon and most of the stars, the ones that aren't circumpolar anyway, that are always seen and the northern sky for northern hemispherians or the southern sky for southern hemispherians like the north star for us this high up in Seattle like the Big Dipper never sets right circumpolar but everything else rises in the east and is born there sets in the west and dies there simply because the earth is spinning west to east right that's the diurnal motion the spin in about 24 hours time that brings us the day as the world turns. These are the days of our lives. And as the sun goes to die tonight in the west, the full moon will rise. That's the deal with a full moon, right? Rises when the sun sets. So is that the moon being born? All right, well, this is kind of like Standard, right? This is diurnal motion. If you watch the chart, like I recorded the first episode and Virgo was rising and I hit record for this one and Libra was rising and Scorpio will probably be rising when I hit record for the third one, right? This is happening in many senses in the east. Oh my gosh. Pardon me, interrupted by awesome... There is just a, take a picture, Um, plethora of sand dollars here in the beach that all must have been washed up at the same time. I mean, there's many um, shells in this mix as well, but so many just complete sand dollars, which is kind of rare, right? I mean, hundreds. I think some of these might be coming home for a bit of my own collection. 
got to have some kind of dollars. And it's really interesting because I keep teasing part three here, but when we start talking about Taurus and manifestation, this a bit is what we're talking about. So I think I'll make a point of coming back to this place during that time. Let's see what we can do about getting out of this people traffic. But let's take one of these sand dollars with us for now, eh? Okay, pardon the mystical, synchronistic interruption of plethora of sand dollars. So we were talking about diurnal death, diurnal birth. Rise in the east, rest in the west. Yeah? And, I mean, that'll happen with the sun today and every day, with the moon today and every day, with Mars today and every day. Venus, all of them, yeah? Some we can see doing this, some we cannot if they're under the beams. And that's the same for everything. So that's like the fixed situation. Again, coming to us courtesy of the Earth's spin on its axis. But then there's zodiacal motion the motion through the signs. So what does that mean? Well, everything rises in the east and sets in the west. But direct motion for the planets and the sun and the moon are always direct, right? Takes them from the west to the east through the signs and constellations of the zodiac. Like Taurus is west of Aries. Gemini is west of Taurus. Right? Sorry. <laughs> Taurus is east of Aries. Gemini is east of Taurus. So, rising in the east, setting in the west, but slowly moving in the other direction when direct. And hopefully that makes sense. So it's one of the reasons why I'm very excited to start sharing this information in the Art of the Chart series that I plan to launch with the coming Mercury Kazemi because it's nice to see this stuff on video. But you can manifest an incredible vision in your mind with your third eye. And let me give you a, a practice to help see this happening, all right? The moon is such an incredible teacher in so many ways. We see the phases that show us that this is all relationship, yeah? And the moon moves so fast, about 13 degrees a day, that you can actually see it moving in both directions in the sky during the course of a night. Tonight's a really wonderful time to do this because Scorpio full moon, but I won't be posting this tonight anyway. But any night when you can see the moon, it's great. Watch it rise if you can. Or just check in with it an hour or two afterwards when it's still in the east. And of course, over the course of the next 10 to 12 hours, you will see it move all the way from the east where it rose to its rest in the west. Because the earth is spinning in the other direction. Now, because the moon moves so fast, you'll also see it moving in zodiacal motion, west to east. 
So what you're going to want to do to notice that is this. Make a little drawing, perhaps, of the moon and some of its neighboring lights. So there'll be some fixed stars, perhaps a constellation that you know nearby, perhaps another planet. And regardless of what planet it is, it's going to move too slow for you to see it moving in the course of the night. We're about to get wet. Safe. Um, but the moon moves so fast, you can actually see it moving in the other direction. So, I mean, if you really want to go for it, have a, have a moon sit. Just be with the moon. Gaze at the moon. Four or five hours. And you'll see it not only moving east to west, but you'll also see that against the background of the other stars and planets, it will slowly be moving in the opposite direction too. And I could repeat that five times, but it doesn't really matter. You can maybe imagine that in your head, but until you do that, until you experience that, until you embody that, it will not be yours. And as soon as you do, like you could go do this tonight, and it will be yours forever, I promise you. Right, because that is the body-mind. That is the experiential mind. And this is where not only are we being called now with Mercury's dance in the earth signs, but we're being empowered in that way. And it's expanding, yeah? And all sorts of amazing things are happening in the earth. <laughs> so, anyway, go for that play and that practice. You will. It's a lovely thing I love to share and I love to practice and experience. It's a gift of the moon. So the moon every day, just as it is with the sun, or at night, will rise in the east and be born and die in the west and have its death. Go to rest. But there's this monthly cycle with the moon, right? This 29 and a half day synodic cycle, the dance of the moon and the sun, the lunisolar cycle, the lunation. Tricky jump here. All right. And tonight's full moon will be, in many senses, the middle of it, where the moon is in its full life. Yeah? And in two weeks' time, the moon will head into the darkness and disappear as it's aligning for new moon. Which is more like no moon, right? We can't see the moon at that time. It's in the darkness. Unless it's a solar eclipse. Which can happen twice, sometimes even three times a year. And this one coming up will not be that, and it usually is not. Usually the new moon is like a no moon, it can't be seen. It's the death. When it moves into the darkness of the previous cycle. And then it makes that new moon alignment, which we can't see. And in a sense, it's given the next intention from the light of the sun. Right? So April 7th, 2016, it got the Aries message. The previous message, which was a solar eclipse and 
Pisces on March 8th, right? Went to die around April 5th, April 6th, April 7th, and makes a new moon alignment, gets the new intention from the Aries sun, and then comes to us about two days later. The moon has to separate by about 30 degrees or one sign from the sun to be seen, and then we see that beautiful just sliver of a crescent, right? Diana's bow. And the moon comes back to us in the west after the sun sets. That's where it starts its cycle because the moon always moves direct. And then two weeks later, we'll come into the fullness of its life. And two weeks after that, back to the death. So it can be born again. Yeah. So for the moon every month. For the sun, yes, it has its daily rise and its daily set, its daily birth, its daily death. But it also has this annual thing, right? And we experience that more in Earth's annual birth and death, right? So right now, Taurus, flowers are blooming. Birds are singing, the bees are buzzing. We're in birth stage, spring and summer. And then we'll go into the fall. The sun will fall in the sky. Persephone will descend into the underworld. Everything will die. Fall and winter, the death of the earth. And then we are reborn. And this is not only like the Persephone mythos, but also Dionysus, and I'll get right back to him. For Mercury, it's a 116-day cycle, the synodic cycle. Born in the morning sky, and this was January 2016. Goes through his initiation time. Yeah, shows himself in the West at the end of his quest, his sagacity. And then is burned in the light of the sun as he's passing the earth. Has that death. And is reborn in the morning to begin a new quest. About four months long. For Venus, the same trip, but it's nine months in the morning. About two and a half months. Invisible, sometimes two months. In a sense, her death and rebirth goes down there. In the cur, if you know the Inanna story. And then she's reborn, she comes back up in the west, finishes her quest. So we can see this with all the planets and they work a little differently, you know? And the myths are very tied to these births and deaths of the planets. And why, you know, would there be some beautiful guidance in that way from the myths? Why are we even worried about that? (laughs) Death and birth. Well, we all experience that in life, obviously. From the womb to the tomb, right? But also in our lives, I mean, how many times do we experience the death of something? The death of... The way we used to be, an old career, a group of friends, whatever. And that's pretty typical to those who are going through this experience we could call the awakening or the quickening or the initiation of rebirth. I mean, it's said in most of the mysteries that human is born from their mother and then born again through intention, through initiation. And of course, that can happen in some a traditional initiation in some secret brotherhood or born again through baptism in a church or whatever. But this is something that many of us are being led through in our own way. And often it is the case that in the awakening experience, one of the key ingredients is 
the experience of isolation. We are awakening up into a new way of who we are, and so we no longer know what we once were. We have to let that die. Die and let live. Often a really hard thing for a lot of us is we don't relate to our old friends that we used to. You know, perhaps we found sobriety or something through this crazy initiation, and then it's hard to hang out with folks who are spending most of their time in the bars, at least for a time. The bar becomes a really high-energy, weird thing as you're awakening into your empathic gifts, which feel like a curse until we get them balanced, you know. And that pain of losing the friendships and the old loves or whatever, and trying to be graceful in that and close the screen door, right, instead of slamming some heavy thing of steel so that can, they can be reactivated when the timing's right. But often when, you know, a community that we've always danced with or whatever dies and we feel that pain of isolation, well, on the other side, we find this fellowship of a soul community that feels in line with what we have now awakened into as the calling of our quest, yeah? At least for now. And of course, that could go down again and again and again, just like the planets. Not only do we have a death and birth every day as we sleep and wake, but we also have these longer periods of death and birth. The exhale and the inhale and the sweet death in between, you know. The breakups, the rekindling of love with new people, all these different things, the shifts in career, whatever. And this is one of the great gifts of astrology, right? Is being able to align ourselves to the sacred timings as the planets dance in our sky. And to work with those cycles in ways of empowerment. And this is my whole trip, right? Shifting, I feel, and I think this is more of the subject for part three here too, is part two is kind of ready for story time and we'll let it die. Moving into a new way of astrology is a spiritual practice. This is my goal. And what I'm allowing myself to be initiated through. And to even let some of the, the predictive astrology that I've learned die so I can find my way into a stronger sense of productive astrology. And that's one of the reasons why you haven't heard from me here in a few months is because I'm in that initiation, that transformation. All right. So Mercury has this 116-day cycle, and right now he's kind of thriving after his initiation in this wise sage evening star end of the quest. And he's about to go through this fire trial to have the old wisdom burned off and then to be reset. In the sign of Taurus, but in the constellation of the ram, and the ram's butt. And so I mentioned before that that ram perhaps is the golden lamb, is the golden fleece 
that gift from Hermes. And some have suggested that the Golden Fleece was an actual document with the words on it written revealing the mysteries of immortality. Okay, so if so, maybe Mercury's sending us that message today. <laughs> I hope you get it if that's what you want. And maybe immortality anyway is the graceful allowance of death and rebirth in its regularity. And choosing that change before it chooses us. <laughs> for both are brilliant strategies for evolution here in the Earth game, but one might be a little more graceful, a little bit more empowering. One I feel is more aligned to surrender, that's change choosing me, and the other a bit more uh, aligned through and empowered allowance. choosing change. There's another idea of where that ram in the sky came from. Some say it was a gift of Dionysus. Dionysus, whose maniads tore Orpheus apart limb from limb. Was it at his command? I don't know. Dionysus, it is said, after all, went and buried Orpheus's bones at the foot of Mount Olympics, where to this day the nightingales sing the most beautiful song to honor the singer who is now gone. And Dionysus and Orpheus have some interesting links otherwise. Dionysus was the only of the Olympian gods who was born of a mortal mother. And really, he was twice born. His mother was Semele, one of Father Zeus's many loves outside of his marriage. And his wife, Hera, was not so happy about this. And unlike other women that Zeus found outside of her bedroom that she tortured by turning them into pigs or cows or having dragons chase them out of town, she did Semele in a different way. She appeared to Semele in disguise and planted the seed in her mind that if Zeus really loved her, he would show himself to Semele in his true form. And that she would be able to trick him into doing this, into showing his love for her, by forcing him to swear on the river Styx that he would grant any wish. And that's how it went down. He swore, she asked, he begged her to change her mind, but she wouldn't because she was set on the idea that his love was not true unless he would show to her his truest form. He begged for her to change her mind because he could not go back on his promise having sworn on the river Styx. And he knew that if he showed her his truest light, that Semele would die. She would not go back and he could not. And so he showed and so she burned. 
and his thunder and lightning. She was pregnant with his child, Dionysus, who had not yet come to term. And Zeus, having lost his love, would not lose the child. He performed a godly Olympian C-section and cut the young Dionysus out from his dead mother's womb, cut his own thigh open, and carried the boy within his leg. And later, the child Dionysus was born of Zeus. The time he spent in father's leg brought to him the essence of immortality. So Dionysus was twice born, born first through this strange C-section, and secondly, even stranger, from his father's thigh. Some say. Others say he was born on earth, naturally, from his mortal mother, a son of Zeus, and that Hera hunted him down and had the Titans eat him. But before they could eat his heart, Zeus stole it away and formed a new child around its love. And that was the second birth of Dionysus. Either way you slice it, the twice-born God. Who is a God? As many are, but specifically he, a God of death and rebirth. For Dionysus is a God of earth. Now, some say that Hera turned the boy into a ram to punish him. Some say that Zeus turned him into a ram to help him escape his wife's rage. One thing that all suggest is that the boy was a bit of a gender bender because in youth, Zeus, to hide the boy from his wife Hera, dressed the young lad in women's clothing, in the clothing of a little girl. And he was raised on earth as a boy in girls' clothing under the stewardship of mortals and nymphs. One of them, a tutor who taught him the magic of the vine, the essence of intoxication, enthusiasm, ecstatic connection to the divine through the grape of wine. And he also learned in that time another ecstatic approach through, you know, the 20-hour tantric orgasm and such. And he had this essence of feminine and masculine nature. And now this is one of the many ways that Dionysus links to Mercury. Or Hermes. You know, Hermes, it is said, had a special night with Aphrodite, and the product of their union was Hermaphrodite. And Mercury, astrologically speaking, is often said to be either feminine or masculine, depending on what he's doing on your chart. Is he morning? Is he evening? And then it goes down to, where you? Are you born during the day or the night? And that's more than we want to get into here. Dionysus is another story with him and this ram. There was a time when he was dying of thirst in Egypt. 
one of the many tricks that Hera, it is said, played on the boy. And he was older at this time. And he was about to die because he did have this mortal side. And a ram came out of nowhere, just appeared as a mirage in the desert. But he was no mirage at all. And Dionysus chased this ram who led him to a spring, an oasis. And Dionysus drank and survived. And right there on the spot, he sacrificed this ram to his father Zeus and built a temple for Zeus there. And Zeus took the essence of that ram and cast it into the sky. And it's that constellation where Mercury shines to us from now, from the above. But soon Mercury will go below. And this is a trip with Mercury, yeah? So he, as messenger, is the one who most graced the company of Earth Maybe the only one who did more so, because he lived here when he was alive, was Dionysus. So there's this connection between Mercury and Dionysus in that way. And this connection between Mercury and Orpheus, Mercury having brought the lyre forth, and perhaps that golden ram, that is the constellation Aries where Mercury is now, or perhaps it was Dionysus. And so... In this time where we celebrate thrice great, we can see how these three great guides and legends are linked. Now Dionysus might have some profound correlations to another fellow who seems to speak to the annual death and birth of the sun. One whose birth is celebrated just after winter solstice, the longest night of the year when the sun is born. A few days later, around Christmas time, but isn't really resurrected for months around Easter because that's when days begin growing longer than nights in the spring and the light has conquered you see and just like that guy well Dionysus was known for having turned water into wine was known for having this strong sense of his own feminine nature, though a male, coming into town in these white robes, flowers in his hair, was rumored also to have hung out with harlots. Dionysus' meniads were a very interesting bunch. They truly drank the punch, yeah? the wine and were committed to ecstasy and they would dance into town and bring joy and a new way into some of these kingdoms that had just been under patriarchal prison times and this of course did not 
often pleased the kings. And Dionysus got a lot of hard times from mortals because he spent most of his time here on earth when he was alive. And he was pretty lenient, more than most of the guides and guidesses in these times, but not always so. And if he had to take out the trash, if someone had just taken their blasphemy too far, and that was easy to do because here was this seemingly mortal man on earth, dressed like a woman often, whose people at least claimed that he was God. So often he would let folks slide. But if they had really crossed the line, all he had to do to clean up the mess was to bring these offenders near his menias. Because those who were in ecstasy, this erotic bliss all of the time, inebriated on wine and happy could also easily turn and often without being conscious that they were doing so would just rip one from limb from limb. And see Dionysus is the god of the vine. It's been a while for me. It's been about four years and a bit. But I don't, re- <laughs> I don't forget, I should say, nights where the vine helped me dance nearly naked, if not completely so, in the streets, full of love and bright ecstasy. And also nights that perhaps I'd prefer to forget, <laughs> where perhaps the sad song someone was singing encourage me to not necessarily consciously so, but tear them limb from limb, so to speak. And the things we did and didn't do and the things we didn't didn't do. But we can always be reborn. And in these times where many planets are dancing backwards, they're perhaps asking us to renew, to remember, to release the regrets, and if we don't run from them and allow them to exist in the shadows and continue to cast the play as they would like, but instead bring them to the conscious mind, see what they truly are, and let them die so we can let us live in a new light, well, these are times of empowerment, times of rebirth opportunities that come our way quite often when we choose to play the earth game according to the dance of the celestial symphony. And it's like that with the vine, so like that with Dionysus. And I think we'll start part three with that.